Hello and welcome to the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by the founder and CEO of Better Capital, David Van Egmond. David, thank you very much for coming on. It's great to be on with you. So I'm excited for this episode. There's plenty to dig into. Uh, obviously, Better Capital, but your time spent at businesses like Barstool and, and FanDuel over the years is plenty to dig into. Tell us about your sort of start in the betting space, in the betting industry, and, and what kicked it all off for you. Yeah, sure. I, I started in the online gaming industry in the U.S. about seven years ago. Now, I had a background as an investment banker in, in technology companies covering companies like Facebook and Uber and Snapchat. And I saw friends go there and I said, I'm passionate about sports. I'm passionate about uh, betting. And it's, it's something I, I really enjoy. I, I want to get into this this business uh, and went to what I, I thought at the time was a technology company in FanDuel, who was a emerging leader in the, in the DFS space, started there as a head of corporate development in early uh, 2015, and then it's all certainly taken off since then. DFS uh, took off, contracted, uh, started growing again, and then and then we had the advent of sports betting, obviously, which was a huge um, boom to the DFS uh, companies. Um, helped FanDuel launch the online sports book um, in New Jersey, start cross-selling into casino and grow the the portfolio products, and then went over to. Uh, to Barstool Sports to sort of uh, rinse and repeat around the the sports betting opportunity in terms of capitalizing on the the market in front of us, and so sold that business to Penn National Gaming, uh, and now have founded Better Capital, uh, my own investment and consulting platform focused on the U.S. Uh, market opportunity across online gaming, from everything from sports betting, iGaming, uh, iLottery, and other verticals. Uh, we're excited to be raising our our first fund to invest in this category, and it's a space I've personally been angel investing in for the last uh, year and a half uh, toward the end of my time at Barstool. Definitely keen to get your thoughts on, on that space. Take us back to the, the investment banking days. What was the the business of betting, let's say, and gaming treated like in those circles going back, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten years, uh, and how has that evolved over the years? Obviously, I'm sure you've You've kept you know a close watch on what's been happening in that space, but just given how uh, the business was very different probably a decade ago compared to it is now. Yeah, I think it was a it was a business that was shunned. Certainly, um, you saw DraftKings and, and FanDuel emerging as DFS players, and when you saw kind of some of their advertising start to to creep up in 2013, and then more prominently in 2014, and as a as a technology investment banker, you're always looking for um, the next unicorn, uh, as it's referred to in, in technology land, where a, a company reaches a, a billion-dollar valuation. I, I was a user of both FanDuel and DraftKings for since about 2012, and I was pitching my bosses saying, hey, these are companies we should go meet. I think these are, could be really big companies. In the, in the business of betting, they, they could be the Uber um, the Facebook um, for their their vertical. Um, and so I was actually courting um, FanDuel as a client. I, I met with Nigel Eccles. I met with Matt King before it turned into, hey, how can I how can I join your team? I was courting them as a client for uh, for the bank, which was a fun experience. Can you share a little bit about your your thesis on FanDuel particularly and, and DraftKings in that category? Because certainly back then it was an exciting you know, DFS platform, there was certainly some some 
you know, interest on the entertainment and sports side when it came to, you know, quasi gambling, let's say, given all the legalities and, and regulatory ba- uh, barriers at the time, not many people were banging the table um, and planting the flag on, on FanDuel becoming obviously what it is today. But even back then, it was it was a nice business, I would say, that was advertising a lot and, and didn't necessarily have the trajectory it, it obviously took off uh, toward. What were some of the things at that time that excited about you? Because I would say, maybe contrarian is the wrong word, but it certainly wasn't the the normal uh, approach to to these businesses to give them such a, a big tick. Yeah, I think I think it was growing at, at, at the hyper growth rates you see out of technology companies from 2013 to 2014, and then 14 to 15, obviously before um, the regulatory crisis, and it was. Unique in the sense that FanDuel was ahead, DraftKings was playing catch-up, and um, DraftKings was playing catch-up in a market that rewarded capital spending. It was a uh, very frothy venture capital market in late 2014, 2015, and so um, DraftKings could spend uh, and spend as much as was necessary to try to reach um, the number one position in the market. So I think that certainly had an impact on how both businesses behaved during that 2015 time, but they were on an incredible, both businesses on this incredible growth um, trajectory until the point that uh, regulatory challenges hit the market. And I think we'll never know um, what could have been if there weren't regulatory challenges in, in fall of 2015 NFL season. Could things have kept growing at a 3x uh, every week, um, if not for negative PR, getting having to pull out of Nevada, and then the trickle down of other states, um, sort of curtailing uh, the growth efforts of the business. Certainly as a as a fantasy sports player, as a better, as someone who were, was engaging in these platforms for several years, you saw the, the customer demand, you saw the stickiness, the retention. Um, I think it was all there. Maybe uh, the contrarians could say, well, the market opportunity was never going to be that big. You were never going to have tens of millions of active real money DFS players um, unless you were spending like crazy on advertising and you could never reach that inflection point. I don't necessarily agree with that. Certainly it's it's a much more niche market than sports betting. That's been clearly, clearly established now, but I, I think we'll never know what DFS um, could have been if not for the, the regulatory backlash and sort of the, the contraction in the industry. Yeah, it is a fascinating one, just given DFS's place globally in other markets where sports betting has come first uh, and, and DFS has come second and just where it's been able to gain traction there. But I'm I'm very interested in your thoughts. Take us back to around 2017, I think it was, when the the merger between the two big DFS giants was, was on the table. And, and maybe once it was sort of called off, where, where that left everything, because it was certainly pre the discussion around uh, past befalling, but what was that time like, and, and what do you recall? Yeah, it was a challenging time, that's for sure. Uh, I was wondering if I had made a horrible decision to leave my nice paycheck um, in investment banking, and wondering if I was going to be unemployed because it was it, it it was going to be challenging. The the companies were coming together, uh, laying down their swords of competition because the thought was with more scale, we can get the, this combined business to profitability, which otherwise it might have been challenging to do in a DFS only um, 
contacts and you didn't know what that would mean. You didn't know what the, the teams would look like. Um, and then you were planning for this event only nine months later to have the rug pulled out from under you from an antitrust perspective saying, nope, this is not going to happen. Scrap everything you've been doing for the last nine months and go back to to business as usual. And so that was certainly um, a challenge, but I think a, a challenge we overcame. Uh, and obviously, uh, if we were on the Titanic, we got quite the, uh, the life raft when the Supreme Court decided to take up the PASPA case. But I, I don't think that um, was the case. That's a little bit of an over-dramatization of the, of the situation. We needed to cut costs and stabilize the business because it was a, a challenging environment. We had to reestablish growth and growth at good unit economics that could one day get the business to profitability. And that's what we were on a path to do. Um, and then we obviously had the, the bigger opportunity of, of sports betting emerge. Yeah, and it wasn't too long to wait for, obviously, May 2018, it happened. But I think the discussions around, at least someone who followed it closely, I got the sense by about Christmas or, you know, into early January and February that, oh, this is going to happen, you know, to a, a high percentage. I think before that, there was still some sentiment that the leagues and the NCAA had won almost every time or every time uh, leading up to the Supreme Court. And it was still a long shot, but I think the, the sentiment changed. Tell me about that time, because even then, um, to the theme of the the brand of FanDuel, let's say, and, and its place in a post-PASPA world, there was still discussion around, you know, the likes of Caesars and Boyd Gaming and MGM and uh, Churchill Downs and, and these type of companies uh, having a huge advantage and a huge lead when it came to potentially having sports betting. I think a large part of that was just the, the presence, the existing presence in Nevada on the sports betting side. And and if you just look at the, the sale price of FanDuel itself, uh, that doesn't necessarily inspire the confidence that it would be the brand it's it's become and obviously you know the the injection of flutter helps that across technology and resources and capital and things like that but tell me about that period of time uh let's say early to mid 2018 the the change in the sort of landscape when it came to who was going to make giant strides in the sports betting and, and entertainment space yeah it was uh i spent a lot of time in las vegas uh and in europe in um in the first half of 2018, um, someone from one of those companies, I won't, I won't name which one, um, that you listed said to me in, in the last few months when we were catching up, he goes, yeah, we made a real mistake when we <laughs> thought our brand uh, was going to be significantly superior yeah. to FanDuel uh, in terms of this U.S. Uh, sports betting opportunity. I think it was it was hard to see the future. Obviously, we as the FanDuel management team believed in our ability to execute. We believed in the strength of the brand. Um, a lot of that certainly could not have been done without the assets that Flutter brought to the table. But I think people who thought, um, hey, I have a casino database. My brand is really powerful in the casino or the horse racing space. I think that was short-sighted. Uh, obviously, that, that's proven to be the case. And the example I tell people is, we at FanDuel had millions in the database that's public is now over 10 million. We had millions of people who downloaded their our app, took out their credit card, made a deposit. No one has ever done that with Caesars or MGM or Churchill Downs, at, at least not to the same extent. Maybe somebody downloaded the Twin Spires app, but that's a much smaller database. Maybe somebody's played Social Casino 
um, with the traditional casino company, but no one's done significant real money transactions at scale on mobile. That's where this is all going to happen. And if you can cross sell effectively and you're a technology company, so you can innovate faster, you can get into new markets as soon as they open, as opposed to sitting in 2021 and still not being in every eligible sports betting state that's open. Um, and those advantages, the, the brand, uh, the power of the database, the, the relevant database, um, it, it's all the 21 to 45 year old males that are on the FanDuel app today. Those are the same customers that are moving into sports betting. It, it's less so the 65 year old slot player that they're not the mobile sports better. Um, so those database just just aren't as relevant. So I think that's the big uh, difference is that um, people didn't have that realization. And now, obviously, over the last three years, the market has clearly demonstrated that and FanDuel and DraftKings have had strong operational success. And certainly there's competitors coming after them. Um, but that was the main advantage um, that I think was missed by the market during that time. And what about sort of over the last, say, 12, 18, even 24 months, once we got past the initial repeal and we got through sort of New Jersey, even towards, you know, Mississippi on the retail side, Pennsylvania, and we we had a number of states that were ticked off, then it became sort of the Indianas, Iowa, uh, even towards Illinois and Michigan and so on. Is it more of a, like you said, the operational excellence, the, the technology and, and regulation game plays a big part of it? Or do you still think that, being you know ready to go in these states that first 30 or 60 days with the database is still the the most valuable part when it comes to to winning percentage of market share i think it's all of the above but database is going to be critical and really matter um and, and you could make arguments on both sides of that but i think it's a combination of technology and database you look at michigan and what happened there with the market share early on in their launch when a bunch of competitors are launched at the same time, the top four own 90% of the market share across FanDuel, DraftKings, BetMGM, and Barstool Sportsbook. You look at Tennessee and MGM, even though they don't have a database there, was able to compete with uh, FanDuel and DraftKings. Um, so I think technology matters uh, a lot and will matter a lot. But to think when you're going to go to... Um, whether it's Ohio that could open at some point over the next year, whether, um, you know, when you get finally get some of the big states, the fact that FanDuel and DraftKings have hundreds of thousands of players in the database and can easily cross-sell them proves a significant competitive advantage. Plus, um, the leading operators in the space are becoming more and more um, technology companies today, whether you look at FanDuel, DraftKings, or BetMGM through their Intain joint venture, you know, they are innovating on the technology side. They own more of their tech. They're vertically integrated or, or trying to vertically integrate, own more of their risk and trading platform, um, own the PAM and other features that allow them to innovate better and provide a better experience um, to customers. Certainly, it's a, it's a combination of those two factors. Do you think anything... Is there any signal that, that tells you that might change as we go to states like Maryland, Virginia, like you said, Ohio, we might have a Massachusetts and, you know, obviously New York's a bit, a bit more jumbled, but is there anything else that comes to the table when we get to, to more states or do you think it's just a, 
it's a it's a cycle and what we've seen in the past will sort of probably continue to happen and those who can execute best across those different areas will have a, a big advantage um i think those who can execute best will have a big advantage obviously we're, we're still in the very first inning uh first minute of the game whatever sports analogy you want to use it's very very early this is a 10-year play but clearly now with 10 states as the proof point um, the top three or top four, if you include the Barstool Sportsbook in the states that they're live in, are establishing themselves as big players. But there's a lot of big players who, I'll call it, haven't fully invested yet um, in the space, whether that's Caesars post-close of the William Hill acquisition, whether that's uh, Bet365, um, whether that's uh, Win Resorts. Uh, whether that's points bad or, or rush street continuing to accelerate um, their growth efforts. You have a lot of companies um, in this space who have significant capital. Um, now, I, I certainly don't believe the market is sustainable for 20 or 30 um, competitors in the space. Uh, so I think we will see consolidation over time. But there's some there's some very big players with billions of dollars of accessible capital that are going to try to play the long game, whether they can do that successfully and ever get to above 5% uh, or even 10% market share um, to be determined, because I think it'll be it'll be hard to extract share from those um, at the top of the mountain today. So let's talk Barstool. Tell us about the, the pitch they had for you uh, when you were discussing with them about the the opportunity, the potential to, to help that brand. Yeah, I, I, I would tell people, uh, sort of in air quotes, I had inside information on how successful they were. Um, FanDuel was the exclusive sports betting partner of Barstool Sports in 2018. I saw what Barstool was able to do in terms of driving customers, driving engagement um, to FanDuel. Obviously, it was a small sample size. It was just in New Jersey, but I could see the power of the brand. I could see their ability to move their audience. I had gotten to know Dave and Erica through that relationship um, with FanDuel. And I said to myself, hey, I just got laughed out of the room at a bunch of casino companies about a year and a half ago when I was selling FanDuel. Now, now I'm laughing at them because they made the mistake of not of thinking their brand was more powerful or thinking they could just slap any brand on this and buy advertising and gain the right to a fair share in this market. And I put together a list of companies and I said, this company doesn't, this casino conglomerate doesn't have a brand. This one doesn't have a brand. They're big public companies who are gonna go after online gaming. They just have to. Um, and Barstool Sports in my mind was the best brand and had clear proof points on how they were successfully executing in terms of marketing, converting customers, engaging customers around sports betting. So I think it was a combination of them pitching me and me, me pitching them because I, I had a very clear vision of what we could um, go do. And I, I called Penn National Gaming on my second week on the job and said, hey, let me come down to your office and tell you why, you know, Barstool Sports could be transformative for your business. I know you're going after online gaming, and I think this is the way that you can unlock value. Um and thankfully, that sales pitch uh, resonated and we got off to the races. And obviously, the market and their results um, are proving that it wasn't just a sales pitch. It was uh, 100% accurate in terms of how they could be a, 
a real player in the market. If Penn was option one or option A, was there a one B or was there a secondary option that existed? I think Penn has obviously proven just given their uh, access and, and few other advantages they have with their incumbent efforts and incumbent gaming already. But for a different brand, not Barstool, not Barstool necessarily, is there any others that stand out to you from a, a partner point of view that may not be on the brand side that, that has a, a presence that would be exciting for, for a brand out there? Yeah, I think I think there were several, but some some have filled in the gap certainly in the last uh, the last few years uh, since that transaction. First, you had Boyd Gaming, but they decided they made the decision: Hey, we're we're aligning with FanDuel. That that's where we're going to go. Um, you had the old Twin Rivers who did their deal with Bally's and now have transformed their business, and they did a, a media partnership subsequently with Sinclair. Um, you certainly have other smaller um, casino operators, probably without the, the footprint nationally of, uh, of a Penn National, but casino groups that are in a couple states, um, casino groups even in one state that are trying to go after the online gaming market. Think someone like Parks um, out of PA. They've launched in several states under the Parks brand. But does anyone in Michigan know Parks? Pro- probably not. So it's probably going to be hard um, to really drive success with, with that brand. So, um, I think there were several, several groups like that who were clearly going after online gaming, but to build a national business likely needed a media brand. And then I think you're seeing companies from Europe, uh, whether it's the rumors around 888 and Sports Illustrated, that the European brands are, are not having any traction or success. And so, uh, they likely need a, a U.S. brand, so I think there would have been uh, plenty of p- other uh, other potential suitors out there, and, and companies you can see are trying to do do deals to fill this uh, fill this gap in their their brand and, and I'll call it marketing funnel. Yeah, brand comes up a fair bit. It's it's an interesting one because I think even to what we were talking about earlier with the Fanduel brand, let's say back in the mid 2010s through you know 14, 15, 16, and just people not truly understanding the stickiness and value of that brand, and obviously through to Barstool. Um, I think if you'd ask people, even in 2018, what level of um, excitement there was around Barstool being a standalone sports betting or online gaming brand, it probably wasn't rating too highly, and obviously now it's, it's shown that out. Are there are there sort of criteria that you think about when it comes to brand? Because we've seen, you know, there's thousands of articles about Buffalo Wild Wings. You mentioned before about Bally's and and that rebranding uh, more recently, is it? It doesn't seem like an easy one to pick the next Barstool or the you know pick the the Fanduel like we discussed earlier. Are there options out there that may not be obvious to everyone that that may have those or that criteria that might tick some boxes that could be a uh, a different brand that emerges in the next three or four years? I don't think there's any one of of Barstool scale. I think it's it's a combination of factors. It's it's audience reach and audience engagement. And how, what is the conversion? How can you convert them? What's the conversion funnel? Um, and so the companies you mentioned, like Buffalo Wild Wings, yeah, it's a, it's a very well-known brand, but you know they don't have millions of email addresses. They don't have tens of millions of people following them on social or consuming digital content, whether that's podcasts, articles, et cetera. I think no one has the breadth and scale of Barstool Sports, so it'll be it'll be impossible to replicate that model. I mean, 
in my view, the only the only media company brand that could be in the same stratosphere as as Barstool is like ESPN. And do they ever do something in and around betting to get more directly involved as opposed to passively taking checks from Caesars and DraftKings? Um, I think that'll be that'll be interesting to see. But I think there's no there's no one of Barstool scale. Um, certainly there's other smaller um media companies uh, emerging like an Outkick Media that has a lot of parallels to Barstool, but is younger in its growth cycle. I think a lot of those companies or companies like that, you know, it's less about totally rebranding um, because the brand isn't isn't of that scale yet. And it's more about, okay, is there a really strong customer acquisition funnel, a really big, highly loyal audience? Um, Again, maybe not the scale of barstool sports, but even fractions of the of the scale can be meaningful um, for operators, particularly operators who have sub one percent market share in a lot of markets, which which is several operators, to meaningfully improve their share in customer acquisition efforts. What about outside of the the entertainment space? Um, whether it's a single person, I mean, there's not many great examples, but sort of a, a Joe Rogan type that has a large audience that is relatively loyal, at least you know pre Spotify, the the numbers are pretty good. Is there an out of the box situation that that might come up? Just given it seems like nothing is necessarily off the table when it comes to uh, internet gaming in the the North American market at the moment. I think it's possible. Um, but I don't think it's likely and you, it, it has to be endemic, right? It can't be someone like Joe Rogan just doing another ad read. Like it has to be what, what I think resonates with Dave Portnoy and Dan Katz, uh, big cat is that they're gamblers. They create content, they're active in it. It's, it doesn't feel like an ad read. It's not intended as an ad read. It's like you're betting with your friend at the bar. Um, and that's how the marketing comes off. And so I, I think it's very, very hard to replicate that unless it's a, an influencer of massive scale who truly is a better. And I don't think, frankly, there's a lot of people who've been publicizing that they've been betters for the last decade and, and building um, millions of followers and audience around them and, and know them for betting. Otherwise, it's just going to be an ad read. And I think that's not going to be all that successful. Is there a role for big tech outside of gaming? Uh, Google, Facebook, Amazon, let's throw in there Tesla and, and so on that may have some meaningful impact on the market? Or is that something that's a long way away if it's going to happen and no one's necessarily in a position to predict what role they may play, if anything? I don't think there's a significant role for them to play. I think there's a ton of regulatory barriers to entry in this market. I, if you want to be an operator, you're going to go to the police station and get fingerprinted. You're going to go through gaming suitability. I don't think Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg and uh, Elon Musk have any interest in disclosing their financial records to the state and going through that process. Uh, the juice just isn't worth the squeeze for them, right? Even if you are a very, very successful sportsbook operator, sportsbook, part of the betting ecosystem, you know, how many billion of revenue could it be? Um, even if it's a $30 billion sports betting market, $5 billion of revenue for one of these tech giants is, is not all that transformative. Um, and additionally, are they comfortable getting in the real money casino gaming space? You have to be 
cross-selling into iGaming. And I think some of the tech companies uh, may not necessarily want to do that. So I, 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 I don't expect them to be a player in the market. I, it's, it's more likely we see ESPN do something and try to get involved than we see Amazon start taking bets on Prime. And one more topic is just the idea of a, a regional or one single state uh, operation. Do you see that at all possible, especially when we talk about some of these larger states like a Texas or a California or a Florida, putting aside just the, the hurdles of getting a, a marketplace that's you know amenable to that type of thing? Do you think there's a, a localization strategy or approach, or do you think they'll just get gobbled up by the big guys anyway if it's somewhat successful? Um, I think there there's potential for localization, particularly amongst tribal operators, if they have a, a big presence and big database in the state. Uh, I think, um, you know, whether it's Action 24-7 in, in Tennessee, uh, proving this out, I don't think anyone can build scale and build more than 5% if they're only market share, if they're only a one state participant. I just think it's too hard um, to gain scale. A lot of the marketing is hard to really regionalize just to one state. So it's possible in big states you have a, a one state only player who, who gets a few percent market share. But I think it's really hard to build a, a sustainable, profitable business that way. Maybe tribes who have their own market access. Um, think uh, in a state like Michigan, where you have sports betting and iGaming at reasonable tax rates. Could a tribe... Uh, like Soaring Eagle, who has the biggest casino in the state, can they do it themselves because there's little incremental cost to them given they own their market access, that have a database, they won't have to do a lot of marketing? Could they build a couple percent market share in Michigan eventually? Yes. But is that a viable, investable business? No, it's more people taking advantage of the assets they already own versus someone totally setting up a new business and just targeting one particular state. I don't think that's viable. So you touched on it a little bit earlier around the FanDuel time. I think it was post the, the merger coming off the table around sort of the growth plan, the growth strategy, and, and in some respects, the growth at all costs mentality that seems to be permeating the business with the, the unit, unit economics of the business and, and how does it be sustainable can you tell me a little bit about the internal sort of thoughts on this topic and, and just how it plays out? Because it it certainly seems to those on the outside that the growth is is ninety five percent of the plan and and the uh, sustainability aspect is something for later on. But I'm guessing that's just not the case. Yeah, I, I think that's the perception, not the reality. And some some are more certainly aggressive in that than others. You you look at a Fanduel as an example. They disclosed they they had 50 million of operating profit in New Jersey across sports and, and i gaming. So in New Jersey, good tax rate, ability to offer sports and i gaming. Now in the third year of the market, they're 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 nicely profitable um, in New Jersey as a leader uh, across sports and i gaming. So I I don't think it's a grow at all costs. I think it's an invest for the long term of. You know, the leaders want to build sustainable, uh, fortified market share um, and, and are willing to invest for a few years to, to see that come to fruition. Now, obviously, states are not going to turn profitable as fast as New Jersey, Pennsylvania. Given the tax rate, it'll be very hard to make a profit. In states that are sports betting only, it'll be very hard to make a profit. Whatever these companies end up doing, whoever gets into New York with a, a more than 50 percent rev share to the state, it's going to be nearly impossible um, to make profits, particularly without um, iGaming. So 
I do think it's challenging, but I do think, you know, people are doing this based on the unit economic trajectory that they see in underwriting to strong five or seven year LTVs, which which I do believe are are valid. So it's just a question of when they get to profitability. I don't I don't think um, it's out of the question at all to get to profitability. It's more a question of how many operators can eventually get to to profitability. I don't think the number 10 player in the market can spend aggressively and ultimately get to profitability. I think that's going to be challenging if you're not if you're not above 5% share and in most markets I think it's going to be challenging to build a long-term profitable business if you're if you're in growth mode as opposed to just maintenance mode. Do you think that convergence towards understanding uh, or at least the timing of that convergence will happen all at once or do you think it'll just be a drip 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 approach where there will be some that are basically saying, all right, we're, we're eligible now for, for M&A and we're happy to go down the consolidation path because we don't think we can get there as as well as we thought? Or do you think it'll it'll get to a point where once a lot of the bigger states have fallen and it goes live that the industry will sort of realize that the, the 20 plus operator markets aren't going to be sustainable outside of, um, you know, obviously you've seen what's happened in New Jersey with a favorable system, but that's just not going to be the norm across the entire North American market. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a little bit of what inv- investors do as well. It's a little bit outside the industry. I think investors who are supporting a lot of these companies, particularly in the public markets, don't have a great understanding of the unit economics of sports betting. I, I look at someone like The Score and, and, and nothing personal against them, but in the last six months, they reported that they generated 0. Uh, 0.1 million or, or 100,000 of GGR implying a 0.1% revenue margin and having negative NGR. And people and investors are celebrating that their handle grew 400 plus percent over the prior year period. And I'm saying to myself, well, anyone can buy handle. They probably just have professional players who have now been banned on FanDuel and DraftKings. And that's why they're trading at such low margins. It's not sustainable. Any anyone can grow handle. You need to be growing the bottom line, particularly over a longer, not even the bottom line. Excuse me, growing revenue, particularly over a longer period, like six months. And so the score is going to just keep doing what it's doing as long as investors are pouring hundreds of millions of dollars into the company and rewarding them with with stock price appreciation. But I think at some point the music's going to stop and investors are going to wake up and say, oh. This company is not going to generate any revenue, let alone profits, and are losing tens of millions of dollars a year trying to get into this business. This probably isn't a $2 billion company. It's probably worth a lot less. And then once you start seeing, I'll call it the free fall or or the uh, return to reality for a lot of these companies with investor perception of their viability in the sports betting market, I think that then forces M&A consolidation because I don't... I don't think any other bigger operator is buying the score for $2 billion, but for $500 million, maybe it's a different story. And then you start seeing more um, consolidation in the space. But the kind of the, I'll call it the more frothy enthusiasm in the public markets is why I'm investing with better capital and early stage uh, private companies that, that service the market largely as B2B software supplier. So I'm still, all those comments aside, I'm still excited about the market opportunity and the ability to invest um, in this space, certainly. Yeah, let's talk in depth about better capital. Is it a, a technology forward and, and focused 
uh, line of sight for you, or are you across you know everything like some of the things we talked about across brand and and customer acquisition and other aspects of the business, or is it something that you want to heighten uh, your focus around software and, and that scalability, given just the the nature of the market at the moment? Yeah, I would I would say the the one liner is we are invested in the the digitalization of of gambling, and I on the business of betting podcast I have no. Uh, reservations about saying that we we are investing in the movement of gambling from retail to online this is the last industry in the united states that hasn't had its what i would refer to as amazon moment and so we are investing in this massive trend of a tam that's three billion dollars today that we think can be 50 billion dollars over the next decade across sports iGaming, gaming and the other adjacent verticals poker uh fantasy racing uh, and iLottery. Um, and within that, we said to ourselves, where should we invest? Obviously, the operator landscape is highly competitive and capital consumptive. Um, so myself and my partner, who's a former software investor, we said, we need to go into the supply chain. This is a classic uh, gold rush, and we want to sell picks and shovels. We don't need to mine for gold. Uh, and so that's our thesis at Better Capital, is we want to be invested in the the B2B software suppliers, the technology enablers to this sector that are used by many or all operators across the spectrum. And we'll look for companies with competitive moats um, within their technology. Uh, and that's where we're starting to invest. And I, I've been doing that personally over the last year plus. We're excited to uh, be going to market soon to raise our, our first fund and, and bring this vision of investing in the market, in the supply chain um, to a reality, because we think it's a highly attractive uh, investment opportunity given the uh, hyper growth in the industry. What are you seeing on the, the B2B technology software side at the moment? Is it people within the, the industry, within online gambling, within the you know digitization of the entertainment space, or is, are there new entrants that are coming in and, and taking a shot at, at building something that you know, they don't have pre-existing ideas or conceptions of what needs to be done, and they have a bit of a fresh perspective on on what can be built in this market. I think it's both. We're, we're looking for the companies that are, are are new and emerging. We'll invest earlier stage, C, late stage C, Series A, Series B. I think the best example of uh, a company in this space that most might know um, and we'll look for the next sort of version of that or adjacencies of that is someone like a GeoComply, a company built uh, in the last decade around the New Jersey online casino market that now has expanded its use case. For those who aren't familiar, they, they supply the geolocation software uh, that a vast majority of operators use to confirm location before permitting a, a wager to be placed in whatever state you're located in. Um, so we're excited about finding that next wave of technology enablers like that. We're going to be invested earlier stage when those companies are just developing. And I think there's a lot of innovation uh, that's occurring now to make the technology better, to make the product experience better. So we think there's a there's a significant amount of investable assets um, in the space, again, across sports uh, and iGaming. How far into this do you think we are when it comes to 
all the different possible businesses, obviously it's a silly remark, but all the different sort of uh, technology that can be built to support what's happening in the United States market across sports, across obviously online uh, casino, uh, potentially other you know verticals like horse racing or or even the DFS business that has been existing for a while. Are we very, very early and there's still plenty of space for entrepreneurs and those who want to get into the, the business to start building and, and potentially be in a great spot in a couple of years time like you said we, we might be in the early innings right now so if you're able to build significantly and quickly in the next 12 or 18 months uh, is there a great spot for those types of businesses or is there heaps of businesses out there already doing a lot of different things and you might need a novel idea or, or build on an idea that's sort of developing at the moment no i think i think there's tons of room though we're in the early innings you can look at it several ways one it's a $3 billion TAM today, 50 over time, whether you believe me or not on that, you know, we've achieved less than 10% of the total market by any rational uh, market estimates. So there's plenty of space to grow. Um, today, we have sports betting in 10 states, iGaming in four states that are open uh, and unrestricted, i.e. you don't have to sign up in person. You have free online betting, competitive markets, not not monopoly states like New Hampshire or Montana, free, open, competitive markets. Um, That's going to be 30 or 35 states for sports betting. That's going to be 10 or 15 states, hopefully more, for iGaming. So there's plenty of room as this growth continues across the landscape. So anyone who wants to get into the space, there's there's still plenty of time um, to, to create compelling, innovative, value-added technology services um, to address this market opportunity. So what gets your attention in this space? Uh, is it the, the people, the person who's, who's leading the charge? Is it the, the product itself? Is it a combination? Obviously, we've talked about things like growth being obviously critical, but also the, the unit economics need to be sustainable at some point uh, and many different aspects around the business as it stands today. Are there certain trends that emerge? Are there certain things that you, you know, when you do your self-analyzing of, of the businesses you're talking to or, or investing in that come up, or is it a combination? It, it's a combination. It, it's really all of the above. We look for recurring revenue in our companies. We look for a uh, clear path to profitability if they're not already profitable. Suppliers tend to have higher margin profiles than, than the operators. Uh, and we're looking for visionary entrepreneurs and leaders who are excited or have relevant experience um, going after this this market opportunity. So I, I think there's plenty of that um, out there today. Uh, we're excited about a number of, of companies that I've already backed um, in the space. Someone like a Boom Sports, who's a free-to-play supplier for sports, so a software supplier for sports engagement. Um, they're expanding into casino, so we'll be addressing both the sports and iGaming markets, uh, have that recurring revenue across a number of customers like a Penn National Gaming uh, and NBC Sports on the media side and several others. That's the type of business we're excited about, a software business, long-term contracts, recurring revenue, ability to expand across the broader online gaming market, addressing multiple verticals. Um, that's what gets us uh, excited as investors at, at Better Capital. Awesome. And just finally, how are those who are building now or have built and they're interested in chatting with someone like you or someone on your team about the growth opportunities that exist in the space? 
Is there an easy way to do that? Is there, have you thought about any sort of incubators or any way to get these type of people and businesses under your wing or is that still TBD? Yeah, we're, uh, we're investing in companies all across the, the space on, on Twitter. I'm at, at Dave underscore Van Eggman, V-A-N-E-G-M-O-N-D. Uh, people can hit me up on, uh, LinkedIn, um, as well. We're, we're raising capital, um, from prospective LPs, um, to participate in our fund for those who want to join us. And we're looking for, uh, we're looking for great companies in and around, um, this space. So, uh, excited to be able to, to share a little bit about what we're, what we're thinking about. Dave, it's been fun having you on the show. It's it's great to chat about some of these topics. Obviously, we just we just skimmed the surface back through the years of uh, pre-Pasper all the way through to today and some big brands and businesses that you've worked with over the years and obviously now with Better Capital. So thanks for coming on and, and sharing your insights. Awesome. Appreciate the time. Great to be with you. 